We continue our walk through the book of Mark this morning, and uh, it's, it's, we, we're going to be skipping over a few sections of the gospel over the next few weeks as we lead up to Easter. So we're not going to go line by line as we have been for the first few sections of Mark's gospel, but we're going to begin to take a more broad scope as we walk through this book. So this morning we're going to skip over a few things, and uh, we're going to be entering into Mark chapter 5 in the latter portion of this um, part of the gospel. So please rise as we read God's word together. We're starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Reading God's word. Let's pray. The grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the word of the Lord will remain firm and true forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Lord, send your spirit. Send your spirit to carry my words to these people here. May they be the words that you have intended for those, whether they're in this building or online today, tomorrow, or even a year from now. Mold and shape hearts. Sanctify your people. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Mr. Vice President and Mr. Speaker and members of the Senate and the House of Representatives, yesterday, 
December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan, Franklin D. Roosevelt, January 8, 1941. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, having filled with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat, but they have failed. Our country is strong. George Bush, September 11th, 2001. January 6, 2021. Another monumental day in the history of the United States of America. I would be remiss to not approach this topic from this pulpit this week. For this is the day that each and every one of us will remember. A day when the United States Capitol was besieged by rioters. A day that saw the name of Jesus being flown over a riot. A day that saw lives lost and blood spilled in the rotunda of the United States Capitol. This was a day that each one of us was held captive by some emotion, whether that be of disbelief, fear, anxiety, whatever it may be. It is another day that will be in infamy, a day that we will know where we are, were when we heard the news. I will take a venture here to say, and I hope that whether Democrat or Republican in the midst of this assembly this morning, that both are disgusted by what transpired Wednesday afternoon. We can say, however, though, that we are a divided country. This is fact. But it's not new fact. Our country's been a divided country almost since day one. We've been a bipartisan country for a majority of our history. We have fought wars over division. Division, I would dare say, is a part of our DNA. But up until now, we've been able to have conversations with one another. Let's just, for the most part, right? Certainly we can have isolated events, and of course there's this big thing called the Civil War, but for the most part, We've been able to sit across a table from one another. We've been able to sit across an aisle from one another and have civil conversation. A pastor friend of mine said recently that it seems that we've lost the ability, the ability to empathize with one another. We've lost the ability to sympathize with one another and we've lost the ability to love one another. We've lost. We've lost a lot. It seems as if we've taken the stance that at least I'm not that kind of sinner. I may be a sinner and I may be broken, but at least I'm not a Democrat sinner. At least I'm not a Republican sinner. At least I am an informed, educated, enlightened, 
sinner, not like him or her. There's a sense of loss, isn't there? At least I'm not like that. Therefore, it seems to me that the problem in our country isn't necessarily one of politics. It's not necessarily even one of government or policy, or maybe even it's not a morality issue. What we're experiencing in our country is a spiritual crisis, a spiritual problem, a problem that is rooted in desperation of loss, a problem that is rooted in a sense of loss that is searching for something, someone to put our faith in to put our trust in, searching for something or someone where we can stand and hold on to a way of life, however we want to define a way of life. Many felt like they lost a way of life four years ago when a president was elected. Many now feel like they've lost a way of life when a new president has been elected. We feel isolated. We feel alone. We feel estranged. We don't know what to do with ourselves. We're desperate. We're unhappy. And honestly, we're not really sure what to do with our emotions, are we? We're not sure what to do with our emotions because we live in unprecedented times. And because we're not sure, we place our faith in people that don't warrant our faith. We place our faith in systems and governments that don't deserve our faith. We place our faith in all sorts of things that don't warrant our trust or our faith. And here's my problem. I do it willingly and without question. So the question that I have, not only for myself, but for all of us this morning is, where is your faith today? And so friends, I want to ask you something this morning. I want to ask you to join me. To join me on a journey. To join me on a journey that concludes with something secure. A journey that starts in desperation then twists and turns through courage and even superstition. It twists and turns in faith and then observes the compassions of death and life. For you see, this is the story of Mark chapter 5. A time when the political environment is much more fragile and tragic than what we experience even today. It's a time of unrest. It's a time of uncertainty, not only politically, but spiritually. People have been longing for hundreds of years for the Messiah, for God to say something, to speak again. And they're worried, they're scared, they're full of anxiety and fear. And they don't know what to do with their emotions. And they're not quite sure where to place their faith and their trust. People are desperate for something, someone to put their faith into. And this desperation then is on full display with two daughters whom Jesus comes in contact with. Two daughters who experience the power of the Lord of the universe and the compassion of the man of sorrows. 
So I'm going to ask you again to join me. Join me on this journey into these wonderful verses to show us faith for times like these. As we begin this journey alongside these characters, I want us to have a working understanding of faith. It's easy for us to fall into a trap of what we think or what we want faith to be. If you recall with me back a few months now, as we looked at the, the book of Hebrews together, we explored what faith looks like. But I wonder, even with that definition, how many of us wish that we had just a little more faith. If I had more faith, I would be able to face this trial. If I had more faith, then my marriage wouldn't be the way it is. If I had more faith, then my kids would be better off. If I had more faith, my job would be better. I'd be more at peace if I just had more faith, if I just, if I just, if I just. If I had more faith, I wouldn't be afraid. And I wouldn't be so cynical. Even the most ardent of Christians who knows what true faith actually is, still teeters on the edge of how faith plays itself out in life. So what is faith? What's the faith that's on display here? And so as we remember in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews gives us the definition of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. A really good definition of faith, but it's not exhaustive, is it? There's more to faith than just a hope and a conviction. There's, there's something more to faith that I think we need, and I think that Mark chapter 5 gives to us. Hebrews 11 is a really helpful definition, but it doesn't go far enough. For faith is more than just these things. For these people in this story, they saw, they hoped, and yet there was something more even. There's something more to their faith than just hoping and being convinced. For this is what we see in Mark chapter 5. But did they have more faith than you? Did they have just a touch more that made them a better Christian? A better believer than you or me? And that's the trap we fall into, isn't it? Well, of course they did. They're in the Bible. I'm not. They had these miracles. They they had to have more faith than me but I would say I don't think that's the case. So what was their faith? Their faith was in someone because that someone was all they had. Jesus was all they had. We understand faith when we're brought to a point where Jesus is all we have. Faith is not something that we muster up. Faith is not something that we can contrive in our own emotions, our own hearts. It's a gift that's given to us. Ephesians tells us that, right? Faith and grace are a packaged gift to you. So what is faith? Faith is a gift that has as its objects, object, Jesus not your ability to muster up faith, not your ability to have enough faith, but to have faith in Jesus. 
And that's it. Mark tells us a story of a father desperate for his little daughter. And this story has sandwiched in between these two stories a story about a woman. A story of desperation. A story of a woman who is mistreated, abused, and a lonely outcast. I want us to settle into this scene, if you will. Last week, Nate talked about Jesus calming the storm. Jesus has calmed the storm. He's cast out a demon, and now he's come back across the same sea in which he just had calmed. And there was a huge crowd that thronged about him. I had an opportunity a number of years in a row when I lived in Chicago to go to a PGA event each and every summer that was held in Chicago. And I went with a good friend of mine. He had some connections, and we got free tickets, so it was even better. And uh, we had VIP passes. It was even better. But we would go early, and we would try to find, and we would try to follow as many players as we possibly could in order to make our day worthwhile. But there was one person that we always wanted to see. From the late 90s and early 2000s, there was no bigger person on the face of the earth, arguably, than Tiger Woods. But you could not get close to him. We tried and we tried and we tried to even get in a vision of Tiger. All we could see were the crowds and the crowds, the layer upon layer upon layer of people, and there was no getting through the crowd. There was too many people. I've seen Tiger, but it was in a different story for another time, but not on those days. You cannot navigate your way through the throng of people. I don't know if there was as many people following Jesus as there is when Tiger Woods is on the golf course. Perhaps, perhaps not. I don't know. All we're told is that there was a a throng of people. And then something remarkable happens. So if you know, have you ever been in a crowd like that? Maybe at a parade or in the mall before we could be in the malls on Christmas time, and you'd walk through and you'd be elbow bumping and stepping on people's toes and all of these things. And this amazing scene then happens with Jesus and the disciples and this woman. And as Jesus is walking with this crowd thronged around him, he suddenly stops and he says, who touched me? And I would be right in the line of the disciples and they have exactly the right response. Are you kidding, Jesus? You're asking us who touched you? Everybody's touched you. There's a huge crowd pressing about you. But then Jesus stops. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples' response is appropriate. They're confused. They're wondering what is happening. But in those days, we need to have a little bit of a context of this woman. In those days, there was a superstition that was widely accepted especially among uh, the people when they would meet a teacher or a healer. They would think and they thought that if they were somehow just able to grasp a clasp of the clothes, meaning oftentimes if you've seen the, the garments of the leaders and the rulers of the day, they would often wear big robes and they'd have tassels that would be around their, their necks and on their collars or sometimes even around their waists. And the prevailing thought was that if I am sick, then all, if I could just somehow grab a piece of the tassel 
or even a corner of, of the cloak, then just by having their presence and, and their closeness with the Lord emanate through them, then, then I could be healed. And so we don't know much about the woman's faith beforehand, but we do know that that was a prevailing thought. And she worked her way through this crowd of people. She was desperate. She was at her wit's end. She just had to see Jesus. She just had to touch him. If I could just touch his garments, I could be made, I could be made well. But why does Mark tell us of this woman? Of all the stories that Mark could tell, especially here and now, sandwiched in between the story of this little girl and her father and her death, why does Mark include this story about this woman? Because the story of this woman and this little girl is eerily similar. We see the same power over life and death. But you say, Ryan, this woman didn't die. this woman was alive. But for all intents and purposes, this woman who was bleeding was dead. She was utterly despised. She was an outcast. The Levitical law was clear that a woman in her cycle was not allowed to enter into the temple. And anyone who touched her would be unclean for seven days and they would not be allowed to enter into the temple either. So this woman wasn't unclean for just one portion of a month, but continually for 12 years. Mark describes her condition and he uses the word mastics. It's a graphic word. Again, not PG, not PG-13, maybe not even R, maybe something even more, maybe M, or maybe not even NR. It's a word that's used to describe a lash or a scourge or a torment. In both Acts and Hebrew, the same word is used to describe a whipping or a scourging. You see, her condition was far more than just the normal physical cycles. It's a graphic word that is not covered in niceties. Having this condition was more than just being removed from the temple. It was something that everyone would know. It was not pleasant to be around. It was a matter of scorn, torture, suffering, shame. But then if Mark chooses to use this one word called mastix as a graphic word, but then he uses a construct in the Greek language to, to further emphasize the desperation and the status of this woman, he uses a grouping of participles which participles take a long time to explain, but just know this, that they are often things that happen and continue to happen. 
not that are past, but they're a perpetual, continual thing. And when you group one upon another, it, it begins to show either praise or adoration or desperation or trial. And here, Mark uses a grouping of a number of participles to describe this torture, this woman, this shame. It says this, she's a woman having a blood flow having suffered from many doctors, having exhausted all her wealth, having not improved, having gotten worse. This woman was desperate, and for all intents and purposes, she was not even human. Her condition was no better than Jairus' little dying girl. For she was dying in every possible way. And Jesus says, knowing that his power to heal had left him, who touched me? And the woman in all of her fear and all of her uncleanness, knowing that she was not supposed to touch anybody, let alone a teacher or a healer, in all of her fear and all of her trembling and all of her shame, she did what good disciples do. She heard. And she came. In verse 27, it tells us that she heard and she came. In verse 33, we are told that she does again what all disciples do. She came in all of her brokenness and fear and she fell on her knees before the Lord of the universe who had healed her. And in the first of the two insights into the compassion of Jesus, he says to this woman, who was no one's daughter at this point. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You see, it is in our brokenness. In our shame, and even sometimes in our misplaced faith, and certainly in our loss, that Jesus meets us. It's there where he heals us. It's here where he gives us something in our loss, for this woman had lost everything. And potentially she faced losing even more. And here Jesus, in her loss, gives her not only healing, not only peace, but he gives her compassion. He gives her himself. For Jesus bled on a tree, didn't he? He bled on a tree to heal our illnesses and our misplaced faith. It was not a mustering of faith that saved and healed this woman. It was the fact that she placed her faith in Jesus for Jesus was all that she had and she was now given a peace that passes not only understanding but a peace unto salvation. So this is not a story of have more faith, people of God. It's a story of hearing and of coming into the presence of the Lord Jesus on our knees. It's a story that understands our hurts, understands our pain, understands our tragedy and our loss and our shame. And it says, come, fall on your knees and worship, for this is what she does. 
For when in the Bible, when someone falls on their knees, it's usually to worship. It urges us to set aside our misguided hopes and emphasizes and, and empathizes, I should say, with our loss and points us to fulfillment of peace in Christ alone. While Jesus was speaking with this woman and just after he had healed her, this daughter of his, whom he has healed and given peace to salvation, someone from Jairus' house, don't know who, but he comes into this scene and in a moment of, of wonder and awe and healing and of peace, this person enters onto the scene and says, your daughter is dead. It's in that moment when everything changes. In a moment where a restored, lost woman is restored to life, a young girl has also died. I like movies. I like them a lot. Especially in this quarantine, I've watched more than my fair share, I must admit. But there are some movies or television series that I just can't stomach. In a world where movies have violence as the norm and extreme violence as the norm, I draw the line at a certain point. I draw the line at a movie or a TV series when kids die. I turn it off. I just can't do it. Maybe you're like me, but I don't have any appreciation for that kind of film. I can't stomach it, for I know this tragedy I know what it means. I've seen it. I've experienced it to lose a child and to be a part of a home where a child has been lost. I know the hurt and the pain of what this is like. And here in this story, the reality of this tragedy is more striking and more real than any movie or TV series. A man of good standing, Jairus, a man who was charged with operating and managing the synagogue. He wasn't a teacher or a leader. He was simply in charge of the building. He managed the synagogue and he comes to Jesus to ask him to help his daughter. He could have gone to any of the leaders. He could have gone to any of the priests, but he didn't. He chose to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're all I have. Please come to my house and heal my daughter. Jesus agrees to come and help. But on the way, burdened by a crowd, Jesus is taken by this woman and he heals her. And now Jairus stands there seeing, witnessing what he's just done for this woman. And then he hears the most terrible words that any father could ever hear. Your child, your daughter, is dead. This is no ordinary loss. This is a loss of a child. Some of us know all too well that loss. A young girl, 12 years old. This is grave loss, heart-wrenching loss. And then the desperation sinks in, doesn't it? She is gone. Jairus' aide tells him, Don't bother the teacher anymore. There's no hope. We've lost her. 
Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. And Jesus goes with Jairus, with Peter, James, and John, and they arrive to a horrendous scene. You can imagine what the scene must have been like. A few weeks ago, we entered the scene of Lazarus, and we explored what that scene must have been like. As terrible and as heartbreaking as the death of a grown man is, it's not right, it's not the way it's supposed to be. But I've been in the homes where children have died, and it is far worse. They're weeping. They're wailing. The people are understandably distraught. In seminary, we're trained in counseling as to attempt to try to handle these situations. Sometimes there's role play the best that we can. Sometimes we talk these things through. But there's really no way of understanding what this room looks like until you walk into that room. But they try to give us some understanding of the things to say and the things not to say. And I can be relatively certain that what Jesus says next is not something that any seminary professor would necessarily say, yeah, this is the course of action that you should take. He walks into the room and there's wailing men and women. He says, why are you crying? Not a really good thing to say, I wouldn't think. But here Jesus says, why are you crying? She is not dead. She's only sleeping. And Jesus enters into the house with the girl's parents while the crowd laughs and jeers at him in disbelief at his nerve. How could you say such a thing? We've seen her die. We're crying, not because she's asleep, because she's died. She's dead. She's not coming back. Do you understand our loss, our hurt, our pain? And Jesus takes the hands of this girl's father and this girl's mother. And he goes into her room. He goes where she's lying. And I cannot tell you how desperately I wish I could be a fly on the wall in that room. Not even so much to see the miracle that's about to take place. But to watch the parents and to hear the tone of our Savior's voice and the most compassionate and the most unbelievable words Jesus says to Letha Kumi. Now we have to understand a little bit why Mark chooses to use the Aramaic at this point in time. For there was also a prevailing thought in the day that there were teachers and healers that had certain sayings that they would use in order to call on some spirit or some healing, that they had some fake language or words that were conjuring up some type of spirit. And Mark is saying, no, these are not fake words. These are actually the words that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. They are real words by a real man to a real girl who was really dead. Talitha Kumi. Little girl. Imagine. Little girl. I say to you, rise. Little girl, wake up. It does not say that Jesus was weeping as it did a few chapters ago with Lazarus. But these words are much more intimate. 
than those that he used with Lazarus. For if you remember, he cried out to the tomb, Lazarus, come out in a loud voice. And here he is sitting bedside with a mom and a dad who would have been weeping. He sits on the bed of a 12-year-old little girl. I can only imagine that the tears flowed from Jesus' face. Little girl rise, and immediately the little girl got up and began walking around. Well, because that's what 12-year-olds do. They don't sit still very long. They get up and they walk around, and it says they were filled with amazement. And Jesus says to them, give her something to eat. This is an interesting, interesting statement to me as well. Why does Mark include these words? There are any number of reasons why, and many commentators would say, well, when Jesus raises us from the dead, when he, when he restores us, he, he brings us into a fellowship with him, so much so that the fellowship is on no better display than it is in the Eucharist. And so there's this sense of, of, of connecting this scene with fellowship and the Lord's table. There's a lot of truth in that statement, and it bears some good conversation and worthy consideration, but there's something more fundamental to our healing than even the fellowship of Christ, with Christ. That fundamental level is that when Jesus heals us, he heals us and raises us entirely, all of us, not just our soul, not just our emotions, but our flesh, of our personalities, of our hunger, of everything about us. He loves his creation. He loves his little girls, his daughters. He's shown that to a bleeding woman. And he's shown that to a 12-year-old little girl. There's nothing that he does not restore. These parents have lost their daughter. And now they have seen that Jesus has the power over death and life. And he's given them back their daughter, all of her. Their loss has been filled by the only person that could. In their loss and in their desperation, they turn to Jesus. This then is the power of the resurrection. This is the filling that we need also. The restoration that we need when we wrestle with our lost hopes. When we wrestle with our lost desires, our lost control, sometimes even our lost health. The question comes again, where do we place our faith? Where is your faith? This journey, as it's meandered through a crowd and courage and superstition, through miracles, this journey leads us to the cross. It leads us to a place where the Father in heaven loses the ever-begotten Son to an isolated hell. It leads us to a lonely tomb where that King of Kings was placed on a slab of stone alone. It leads us to the same tomb where the same body rose from the dead on the third day in order that we 
would be raised. In order that we would be restored, not lost. For Jesus, as he then rose, not only from the dead, but back into the throne room of heaven, says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You are mine. You are not lost. He says the tears will be removed. The pain will go away. And the crying will be no more. And so we yearn and we long for the day of Jesus' return when loss will be no more, when tears will be no more. And so this morning I urge you to hear, to hear your Savior, to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself to hear, to come, to fall on your knees and worship him, to fall on your knees and worship the one who has said to each one of us, where is your faith this morning? My prayer is that in our loss, in our pain, in our hurt, our faith is found in the compassion of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who embraces each and every one of us with the words that he gave this 12-year-old little girl that a mother and a father heard, that a woman heard. Child, rise. Go in peace. Be healed. Where's your faith? Where's your faith in times like these? May it be only in the outstretched arms and the compassionate voice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who says, come, you are healed. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, heal us. Draw us to our knees. For we long to hear your voice. We long to hear your compassion. We long to know your power and your strength. So as we go from here on this day and as we go into our weeks, may your voice be in our ears. Rise. Go in peace. Holy Spirit, comfort us. Embolden us. We pray all these things. In Jesus' strong in living name. Amen.